Welcome back to PodQuest. This is the podcast for the Quest Solar Engineering Research Center. I'm Joe Karras, and as always, I'm here with Sebastian Hussein. And once again, we're recording on the campus of Arizona State University here in sunny Tempe, Arizona. Yep, great to be back again with you, Joe. Uh, we're here to explore the narratives of solar, and today we'll get a little bit more technical into the nitty-gritty of the science involved in solar research. And uh, to do that, we have Simone Bernardini with us, uh, a fellow PhD candidate here at ASU. Welcome, Simone. Hello. Uh, nice to be here. Yeah, welcome to our uh, our new studio. <laughs> yeah, using air quotes here. It yeah. looks good. We've commandeered an empty office. Somehow we were able to find this. Right, we snuck in. Uh, you know, maybe I should say that, but no. Thank you to uh, CBDG, another engineering research center here at ASU. It's the Center for Biomediated and Bioinspired Geotechnics. I don't know what that means. Maybe we'll have a guest on at some point. Yeah, yeah I mean, we'll have to do a crossover episode between solar and bioinspired geotechnics. I don't know how much overlap there is, but we'll have to thank them by inviting them on at some point. Right. But here, we're here today to talk to Simone and about work, your work. First thing we're interested in is, like, how did you end up here? I mean, so how did you end up interested in science? Let's start with that. And then, yeah, so um, you know, how did that transition to, to a graduate program in solar? Well, that um, so I'm from Italy. I, that's where I got my uh, bachelor and my master degree. Okay. I then um, uh, was involved in a project in a research lab in the, in the Netherlands, okay. where I worked for about one year. And, uh, and so this was during your master's? This was for my master's thesis. So you were actually working in the Netherlands? Yes, in the Energy Research Center for Energy. Uh, I, said, I think I said that. Yeah, in the Netherlands. <laughs> um, and um, that work um, uh, like resulted in a paper. Okay. And, uh, that, and uh, I ended up going to this conference in Austin in 2012. Okay. And uh, that's where I met uh, Toto Bertoni. And I uh, found out about the DFAT lab. She was uh, just starting here at ASU. And uh, I was about to graduate at the time, so we stayed in touch, and we just found out that there was a really good match. So, master's degree. So, your bachelor's degree was in? Both my bachelor and my master were in material science, uh, which in Italy are a bit more focused on physics and chemistry than maybe the engineering side, okay. like here at the at ASU. Um, then I started working on solar at TCN. Uh, so in the Netherlands. So that was the first time you'd ever done anything? Yes, I had had some maybe basic introduction in some classes, but yeah, definitely that was my first hands-on uh, solar energy. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I got interested into that. I like the social aspects of working on solar. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was happy to join the the ASU labs and the, the Quest. Uh-huh. So that was the perfect uh, uh, kind of situation for me. And so what was your... What was your actual research project for your master's program in the Netherlands? Yeah, so there I work on uh, light-induced degradation of uh, multicrystalline solar cells. Okay. Uh, so for those that don't know, like um, these uh, these materials, like silicon um, P-type, maybe I don't know how technical I should go into this, but so so, so silicon is a is a crystalline material that makes up most of today's solar panels. That's right. Yes, and uh, unfortunately, some of these material uh, suffer for um, from some sort of degradation. Uh, which, uh, in this case, it uh, induced by just exposition to light. Oh, so that seems bad. So that for that a sounds cell. for yeah. a solar cell. Yeah. yeah. So so a solar cell exposed to light starts to degrade, and by degrade we mean like it, it the efficiency decreases over time. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Just uh, by the moment you put them under the sun, uh, their performance starts degrading, and that's obviously what you don't want to uh, happen in a solar cell. So there there is actually a lot of research still going on, still like uh, um, trying to understand the mechanism more in depth, and uh, try to avoid that happening. Uh, yeah, so that was the first project I was involved into. Is that what you then spoke to Mariana about, about working on a project similar to that here? Um, yeah, so I think um, I, I knew she was going to start doing uh, some similar kind of uh, research. Uh, in particular, there is this tool, uh, pretty famous in the field, it's called a Sinton Lifetime Tester. Uh, I knew she was going to get a similar tool uh, in a lab. 
and um, just like kind of upgraded version with like a temperature control stage so that you can do like temperature control measurements. Uh, but basically that, that, you know, I had that kind of, um, I, I was used to work with that kind of tool. So I guess before we dive right into uh, the science of what the Sintin is testing and everything, um, how did you uh, like Arizona, I guess, visiting? Oh. It's uh, quite a big change coming over from the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I love the weather in Arizona. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, being from Italy, I'm used to spend a lot of time in the sun, you know, maybe go to the beach and stuff like that. Uh, the Netherlands, uh, it was a very different place. Uh, it would <laughs> it would rain almost all year. You would have like maybe two weeks of summer. And that was really rough uh, for me. So when I heard about a place where you have sun like 300 days, 330 days yeah. per year, I yeah. felt like I would, um, you know, I felt kind of excited about it. So I definitely <laughs> want to go. And uh, I found, you know, I didn't know anything about Arizona. But when I got here, I found out all the beautiful places, a lot of, you know, things you can do. And nature is just gorgeous so you know it's like it was a big surprise and i'm happy definitely happy of my choice so great yeah you're liking the place and uh you're liking your research project um so going back to that yeah tell us a little bit about this sentin lifetime tool uh what what do you mean by lifetime i guess we could start yeah there. um sure so yeah most of my research has been focused on uh, um pretty much like measuring lifetime under different conditions uh lifetime is pretty much an is a parameter that uh gives you a good indication of the quality of the material you're looking at um, you can, there are a lot of different information that you can get out of that, like, um, what's, you know, if there are some impurities, if there is something that is limiting the performance of, uh, of your device. So it's very interesting. There are a lot of information that you get out of it. And as I said, here it is, you, we can make, uh, measurements, uh, different temperature and different kind of illumination conditions. So that's also important for, uh, for solid cells. So, so lifetime, as I understand it, yes. we're referring to how long an electron lasts that's right. inside the solar cell material, right? So you shine some light on the cell, the cell turns it and turns the photon into an electron, transfers the energy of the photon to an electron. And the whole, the physicists listening will say okay. you have to. And, and then that electron exists as a, an active electrical carrier for some. That's that's right. The moment you shine light on, on this material, you're creating these uh, electrons and holes. Okay. And uh, you want them to be uh, separate as long as possible, right. because that's, that's the way you're able to collect them and to generate power out of your solar cell. Uh, the problem is this electron and this hole, they tend to recombine. And so that energy uh, that, as you say, comes into the form of a photon is uh, pretty much lost. And um, and so that's why we talk of lifetime. Lifetime is it's just the time um, that the electron and the hole lives in a separate state before they recombine. So what is that time scale usually? Oh, for a good material, we are talking of milliseconds. So, so a thousand, thousandths of a second? It, that's right. And we're talking of a really good uh, kind of material, but anything uh, any sort of impurity that is in the material can limit that that you know that number uh, by a lot. We can go back to uh, microseconds, which is a thousand of a thousand of seconds. So sometimes these values are, are very small, but uh, they can still make like decent solar cells. So it's either the blink of an eye or a fraction of the blink of an eye makes the difference in between a good solar cell or a bad solar cell. Uh, yeah, that's right. So talking about impurities, then uh, that can be the limiting factor. Um, why are the what uh, first what are impurities and then why are they in the material in the first place so these impurities um they can be um like metal any pretty much like uh sort of metal that are present uh in the um, in the making of of the material so uh, for example silicon comes from from the sand pretty much but uh, uh, then it has to go through very high temperature processes 
And uh, obviously, in these processes, uh, the silicon is in touch, uh, is in contact with uh, with our, um, with crucibles and with other um, parts of the of the of the tools and the instrumentation. And so, uh, anything that is present uh, in this uh, material, it can very easily transfer into the silicon. And then once the silicon uh, is is cooled down and is formed like this uh, these crystals, you still end up with these impurities into into the silicon. Okay. And and this again, I can really impact the the quality. So that's um, pretty much guaranteed. You you're not going to have pure material then, because it's just coming from the containers that you have to hold it at at these high temperatures. Right. There are techniques to avoid uh, this kind of um, uh, processing, like this transferring of uh, of impurities into the silicon, uh, where for example the material is heated up by um, uh, elements that actually are not in touch with it, mm. and uh, so you can um, control the uh, distribution of impurities uh, into the, the, the silicon ingot, which is massive. It's, mm-hmm. it's very big. So you maybe you are able to push all the impurities uh, at the end or at the beginning of this massive ingot and just cut it off, and you know you're not going to use it. Uh, so are you looking at large ingots and blocks then of this material? Um, not really. I mean, my research is then uh, focused on um, pretty much small kind of uh, uh, samples coming from high, very high uh, quality uh, material, um, mostly because we were interested in uh, um, trying to find a way to um, determine even very small concentration of impurities. Because as I said, there are um, ways to make very high quality, but still some impurities are present. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the techniques uh, that uh, we have uh, right now, they are not actually capable of detecting uh, what impurity mm-hmm. uh, you have in your material. And so we thought that with our, with our tool, uh, we will be able to do that. And so we develop a method uh, to analyze the data in order to like, get uh, very, uh, information from a very low concentration of, of impurities. Okay. Uh, what kind of concentrations are, are we talking about? Um, we are talking of like 10 to the 8, 10 to the 9, which is, uh, may sound like a lot, but I mean, in terms of uh, impurity concentration, it's a very low uh, mm-hmm. concentration. It's order of magnitude uh, below what other uh, tools uh, can measure. So that was uh, that was a pretty good result. So ten to the eighth, in terms of per per cubic centimeter, right? Yeah. That's what you're, that's what the concentration means. So we have ten to the eight atoms of some impurity within a cubic right. centimeter of material, but that works out to be something like one part in one billion. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's pretty low. Yeah. Concentrations. Yeah, so that's an incredible uh, sort of detection limit. So are you trying to detect it to identify the type of impurity, or can you make further extrapolations about how to improve the material, or what is the goal of being able to see these impurities? Yeah, well, uh, the goal here was, um, as I said, trying to push that, uh, the, um, the detection limit to a very low uh, kind of uh, uh, you know value mm-hmm. so that we can tell even these companies that are making this very high-quality uh, material, we can tell them, look, you still have room for improvement. And we think that uh, this is the metal impurity that is affecting uh, your, uh, uh, your material. So maybe uh, you can think of what part of your process, uh, uh, you know, at what point this actually, uh, this metal impurity may have migrated into the silicon. And if you are able to take that out, maybe you can push your efficiency and you know, the quality of your material even farther. So that's, that's what uh, our, this method that uh, we work on kind of was the, the end goal to provide information for uh, people making um, silicon wafers and to push their quality even farther. Okay, so identifying you have more zinc instead of iron, so look in your process to see where could zinc be that's right. introduced. Yeah. Okay, interesting, cool. Uh, I guess what are some of the results that 
that you found, if you don't mind talking about those? Uh, yeah, well, um, we use some material. I don't know if I should say the company. So we just use this very high quality material. And uh, in this case, so again, this method uh, is, um, I think it's interesting because it's not, it's giving you like a range of possibilities. Uh, so what are the most likely um, impurities present in your material? So we are gonna tell you, uh, it may be copper, it may be zinc, it may be gold, uh, but we don't know the details of your process. So then it's up to you to understand mm-hmm. uh, which one may actually be the, you know, the real culprit here. So could you tell us, uh, can you just take a wafer of silicon that they've provided you and you throw it into this tool, you take a measurement and you get your answer or what, so, what do you have to do? Unfortunately, it's not that easy. Um, and again, because uh, we focus on this uh, very high quality material, we had to make sure that uh, everything else was uh, pretty much as good as possible. And I, I'm talking here, for example, uh, process of passivation of these samples. That means that the surface of these samples had to be treated in a specific way so that uh, our measurement would not be affected uh, by by the, the properties of the so surface. When so when we talk about like recombination and lifetime limiters, you know, impurities are one way to, to ruin the lifetime of your material, but also the surface of the material. Yes, surface is, is like a region where a lot of recombination can happen. So in order to avoid that, uh, you need to deposit other material on top of your sample uh, that has the property of um, reducing or completely eliminating this uh, this recombination so that you can actually focus on on the bike. What's happening inside the wafer. Okay. So I guess you could see recombination as a sum of recombinations from the surface and the bulk and whatever other processes yep. may be. Totally. It's exactly that. It's exactly uh, there are different terms that uh, you know, play a role in the recombination. And if you want to focus on just one of them, obviously you need to limit the other ones as much as possible. I see. Uh, so what are some of the methods of doing that? You mentioned this passivation, so you put something on the top. What materials do you put down and how do you how do you do that? So in our case, we try different, uh, different materials. Um, this was a few years ago uh, when I first started. Uh, there are ASU is, you, is uh, you know, has the capability of uh, um, depositing a lot of different materials with different techniques. So uh, the most common ones are silicon nitride, aluminum oxide, and amorphous silicon. So we tried these, uh, these three materials and uh, we had the best results with amorphous silicon. So we just kept working with that and uh, we actually got very good results. So amorphous silicon on top of crystalline silicon, right? So we have, a, we have a piece of silicon that's in crystal form and then you put amorphous, which means not in crystal form, just sort of not not regularly bonded, yeah. randomly bonded. That's right. And uh, actually, the most important part uh, of this kind of material is that it introduces uh, hydrogen at the, at the interface with, the, with your crystalline silicon. And this hydrogen is actually capable, uh, as a strong impact on the recombination, is capable of re, uh, pretty much eliminating the recombination at the surface. So, so it's, actually, it's actually hydrogen that's like sort of sitting on the surface that, yes. that reduces the recombination of the surface. So we just need to operate solar cells in a constant hydrogen environment then? Or? That could be an option for somebody. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't New know, it would be good for everybody. Yeah, but. Yeah. That, could be diff- that could be tough. So after you found uh, this good passivation layer, um, you can then move on from the surface and start investigating the bulk recombination within the depth of the material. The yeah. wafer. Um, so what, what does that process entail? What is the experiment that you do, and then how do you analyze that, that data? So um, it's it's interesting because um, the thing to keep in mind here is that every metal impurities has a sort of different signature in your measurement. So again, uh, when you measure this lifetime under different temperature conditions or illumination conditions, oh, that's um, the, the impurity that, that you have there is gonna affect uh, this, um, these results a lot. So by looking at the way that your lifetime changes, 
uh, under different conditions, you are, um, or you should be able, that's what actually we demonstrated, that we are capable of identifying um, the, the, the metal impurities in the material. So if you have copper, you know, the temperature effect of the lifetime might be one thing. Yes. If you have iron, it might be something yeah. else. And then therefore, if you take a wafer where you're not sure, you can do measurements under different conditions. Right, right. you're looking for this signature, uh, which is pretty much uh, depends on, yeah, uh, in, in a univocal way to, to your metal impurity. Okay, cool. That sounds like a lot of data fitting. Then. Yeah, that, that <laughs> took a lot of the, you know, you need obviously to to take all the measurements at different temperatures and... Uh, and you're probably like intentionally contaminating samples sometimes, or at least taking samples that where you know what the purity um, concentrations are? We tried um, with, um, that, that's interesting because the, the research that, um, this research has been going for, uh, for a long time and most of the groups uh, in the past, they've used uh, intentionally contaminated samples. So, but that, uh, that makes obviously the analysis a bit easier because you either know exactly what you're putting into <laughs> your material, you know the density, so you already know a lot of information. What we wanted to, to prove here is that we can tell you with a certain degree of certainty uh, what's what's the metal impurities? Even if we don't have any background information, so if you know we don't know what what the metal impurity is, we don't know the concentration, we don't know, we didn't, don't even know the details of your process. It just mm -hmm. this is what the data are telling us. Is this a process that anyone is able to apply then to their material? Yeah, I mean this uh, was uh, was kind of designed to be so that everybody can use it. So you only need this uh, this kind of measurements, mm -hmm. and then after that we we kind of designed this uh, this method that we call DPCM uh, to so that you can everybody can use it. So okay. it's, it's just a code, uh, and you can run it, and that is gonna tell you. Uh, which is the most likely impurity. How do you distribute this code, or how can, <laughs> if anyone listening is interested, how might they find Oh, it's it? on a website, which is a pretty weird name. I can, uh, maybe we can uh, follow <laughs> can up it, on this. Yeah, we can put it in the show notes or something. Yes, but it's definitely, it's available. It's on the, it's, it's up on our website, and it's available for everybody to use. I guess something that's unique in uh, the scientific or academic realm is once we get results like these, uh, we actually then publish them. Try to share them with other people from around the world, try to, you know, share our code, for example, with people from around the world. Yeah, so, you, so you've, you've been working on, so you've published some papers already and you're working on more. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like trying to write papers and, yeah. um, you know, what the process of publishing them is? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, um, you know, I, I'm approaching, I guess, the, the, the last part of my PhD, so <laughs> writing, writing is, yeah, it's been like uh, what I've been doing, like, the most recently. Uh, so, well, obviously you start with uh, writing what you've done, uh, you write your paper and then you send it to your advisor, you send it to, to your co-authors, and first of all, you collect all their feedbacks and try to make this paper as good as possible. For, you know, there are a lot of uh, journals in the field, so if you have a, you know, maybe some are focused more on the device aspects of it, maybe some are more uh, interested in the physics uh, happening in, uh, in your research, so maybe you want to kind of um, um, find the best journal that kind of fit uh, your results and what you what 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 are, what's the information that you wanna uh, have the, have out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so once you do that, you then send your paper, and they are gonna select some uh, some experts in the field to review your paper. You not gonna know who they are. So these are just anonymous people. Yes. You may you may know who they are, but they don't tell you their names. <laughs> so you don't know who they are, and they don't know who the author of the paper oh, okay. is. So there is a completely uh, complete uh, like a anonymous kind of yeah, uh, process almost objective. exactly yeah. the idea is that you're supposedly um, just um, you know reviewing the paper and assessing the quality of the paper disregarding mm -hmm. who is writing it so okay. uh, that's that's the best way that you can do it and and so uh, sometime it takes some you know it takes maybe a month it takes 
you know, you just maybe several months waiting, maybe several months. You're just waiting for uh, these reviewers to read your paper and send you feedbacks. So then you're gonna receive this email where maybe your paper was uh, was um, was accepted if you were, you know, if it was good enough. Other times it can be rejected. Other times you may have to go through a lot of revision. Um, but usually, what I can say is that. Uh, when you go through this process, your work is uh, gets so much better because you get inputs from obviously experts in the field, and but that they they have not they're not maybe that familiar with what you've been doing. So usually their comments, you know, they are very very helpful, and uh, and so then you try to address uh, all these comments uh, in the best way as possible, and you try to make your uh, um, your paper uh, better and better. And, um, and send back maybe a different version. So through that process, your paper could entirely change or have a new section or something? Definitely, it can, it can change a lot. It's, um, it can be a little bit painful at times because uh, <laughs> you know you, you think you, you've done a good job maybe, you think your paper uh, makes sense. Yeah, this is something you spent a lot of time on already, right? Yeah. To have to go back and yeah. you know, rewrite lots of, but lots of it could be. I can tell you that at the end of the day, your paper is gonna look much better uh, after this process. So do you have any tips for any of us grad students who have yet to publish and are uh, starting that process? I mean, <laughs> I think lot, yeah. I think like a good advice that I try to keep in mind myself most of the time is just uh, not spend too much time on uh, uh, on a particular word, on a particular sentence that you think uh, can be uh, written in a different way. Just try to convey your ideas in the best way as possible. Just if something is not perfect, you can go back later, but just try not to get stuck on something for too long because mm -hmm. that's not gonna help. Mm -hmm. And your paper is going through, as I said, like is, your advisor maybe is gonna review it, your co-authors are gonna review it. So you're gonna have time to work on that. But try to focus more on the story that you're trying to convey, why your paper is important, why your results are important. You, you're gonna have time to polish it mm -hmm. in, a, in a second time. Just get something down. It's always easier to edit yeah. when you actually have some. Focus on the outline, focus on the story to start. Exactly. What, what sits in front of you in some kind of form is going to be easier than to, to modify it. And then, you know, don't get too hung up on the details because it's going to be revised totally. several times. Yeah. Totally. You know, several times yeah. before it's a finished product. If only we had that ability with podcasts and then maybe yeah. these episodes <laughs> would be really, really good. Yeah, to go back over and over and over again. <laughs> Peer-reviewed podcasting process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, you have a couple of papers published already or a few coming out? Yes. Um, uh, where might people be able to find some of your, your papers? We published two. Uh, one was published in a, a journal called uh, Progress in Photovoltaics. Um, the other one was uh, published in a, in a paper that is uh, connected to the conference, the big IEEE uh, conference that happens every year, and is the Journal of Photovoltaics mm -hmm. uh, paper. Progress in Photovoltaics and the Journal of Photovoltaics. That's right. For future future papers you have sort of a similar um so that's that's a good that's interesting because <laughs> this this paper i've been working a lot uh and we are gonna give it a shot to nature energy nature energy so yeah it's which, associated with nature which is like maybe the most important that's right so it's a you know kind of big impact journal uh what is good about it is that they're gonna give you they're gonna give us like a, a feedback in a very short time okay. so we're just gonna take a shot and see how it goes if they're interested yeah. Uh, if they're so, not, and this has as much to do with what the journal is actually interested in publishing, exactly, as it does with the quality yeah. of your paper. You know, like yeah. there's sort of yeah. You need to make sure that again, like uh, every paper, maybe focus on different aspects and you know try to understand if that may work. But we're not we're not entirely sure. But we also figured that uh, it wouldn't hurt, yeah. so we're gonna uh, we're gonna try that. And the, and the benefit to publishing in a bigger journal like Nature Energy would be that it's it's more widely read. Yeah, definitely, your work will. 
definitely have a bigger exposition and more people uh, may be able to, to find it and, and read it, maybe if they're interested. They may even get like mainstream media coverage. Yeah, well, who knows? Sure. <laughs> like CNN nightly special on recombination. Yeah, so just would be, uh, <laughs> pretty interesting. <laughs> I'm expecting a lot of more interviews in the future. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had you first on PodQuest. Don't you forget that. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> we'll tweet this episode at John Oliver or something and see what happens. You know, it, uh, it's happening <laughs> yeah. too. Okay. So uh, yeah, you've gotten into, into publishing and, and things like that now. Um, does that mean you're interested in an academic route? then after after graduation <laughs> well uh i don't know how much i should say about this but um i like the work in uh, in academia definitely i i like the uh, the research uh process so i think um working in a lab is definitely what i'm looking for mm. um being a professor i'm not that sure about it like seeing sure. <laughs> uh professors here like how, how you know how much work they have to do on <laughs> things that are maybe not always related mm. uh, strictly uh, to with the lab, so um, I'm not maybe the the best person for it either. So, uh, so are you looking to stick around here in the U.S. or? Um, so <laughs> as I said, like uh, I love Arizona. I, I would like to stay here, but um, I'm also um, you know very far from home. Mm. So I I kind of need to. I think I think I go back to Europe and and uh, find a different place. Yeah. Um, but it's, there's nothing nothing certain here yet, so still looking out for opportunities. Well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up for today. So we gave you a little bit of insight into what PhD research, or at least one example of what PhD research is, and how it's published, and, and where it might lead in the future. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of PodQuest, and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah, thanks very much, Simone, for your time and for coming in. Thank you, guys. PodQuest is a production of the graduate students of the Quest Engineering Research Center, Find out more at quest.asu.edu, that's qest.asu.edu. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in the material are the opinions of the authors and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Science Foundation and U.S. Department of Energy. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you later.